Welcome to the Alliance of Social Entrepreneurship podcast series. My name is Ilse, and here we hold conversations with creative and inspiring entrepreneurs. I hope that with this podcast, you get the ideas, knowledge, and encouragement to create your own business that makes a positive impact on the people and the planet. So today I have the pleasure to hold a conversation with Naomi Ryland, who co-wrote this book, uh, which is called Starting a Revolution, which presents a very different uh, and I would say more positive way to lead and run a business. So Naomi, welcome. I'm really uh, happy to have you here and we are ending also our podcast season with you. And uh, why don't you start telling us a little bit more about yourself and your work and also your vision to finding a different different way of working. Sure. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, so around seven years ago, I founded a company called uh, TBD, as it was called The Changer back then, actually. Um, and it's a place where people who want to change the world through their work, who want to work in a different way than, than usual, um, can find jobs and opportunities um, to do so. And um, in doing so, we realized that a lot of the kind of traditional ways of working and ways of building a business didn't necessarily feel too good for us. Um, and that a lot of the kind of business advice and yeah, information that we were getting was coming from quite an undiverse source. So if you look at the uh, bestseller list for business and leadership in Amazon, you'll see that it's 95% um, white males. Um, and so when we started to look at like what other kind of role models were out there and what other ways of doing business were out there, we actually found that there are some really, really inspiring women um, already building companies um, in a really different way that's going against the status quo, but they're not really getting the platform that a lot of other people are. So um, we went and um, found some of these um, women and interviewed them and and put that together, put our findings together in a book um, called Starting a Revolution, What You Can Learn from Female Entrepreneurs About the Future of Business, um, which has really helped us. As When I speak of us, um, it's me and Lisa Jaspers, who f founded Folk Days, um, a similar social enterprise that's um, based in um, kind of redesigning the whole uh, fashion world to make it more sustainable and ethical. And um, yeah, so we, we were able to use a lot of the advice that we've learned from these women ourselves and wanted to share it with other people. And yeah, that's why we decided to put it into a book. One of the things which reminded, uh, which I was reminded of when I was reading your book, there was a moment in, in my life when I wanted to switch from NGO world to, into the business. And, and uh, I had an idea, I went to incubator. And I think th that was the first time when I was hit with reality of businesses because it was very different way of communication which I was presented uh, and um, yeah I'm used to much more soft-spoken um, collaborative environments and I was yeah you know I was doubting myself at that moment whether I am not able to grow that tough skin instead of questioning the the insanity of the enterprises that are presented there so 
what has been your experience? I know you've write a lot about that in, in the book and I can really resonate with that. But can you tell also to our viewers and listeners a little bit more about your uh, frustrating experience or some patterns that you cannot really mm, stand <laughs> in, in, uh, yeah, in business? Mm, sure. <laughs> so I guess uh, my experience was a little bit similar. So I come, come from the nonprofit sector. Um, so I um, was also used to a bit of a different way of working. We, when we started the business, we were in a tech incubator with um, about 15 to 20 other teams, and we were the only female team, um, which kind of is representative for the startup sector in Germany as a whole. So it's, um, yeah, very much minority uh, women. And um, yeah, our feeling kind of throughout the whole process was that we really had to fix ourselves in order to fit in. So in particular, when we were looking for funding, um, we had the experience of being given a lot of advice, like, um, you know, uh, talking about how you're going to beat the competition and um, trying to kind of push your numbers as high as possible, even if you're not really sure you're going to reach it. And even you know, telling investors that you've already got interest from other investors, even though that's not true and kind of some kind of like advice, which just didn't really feel like how we wanted to be, but it was just kind of accepted as that's what you've got to do. That's the kind of game and the rules that you've got to play. Um, and that was also kind of something like an experience that we had whenever we went to um, conferences, like startup conferences or read startup media that, um, there were lots of offers for female entrepreneurs, which were about you know how to optimize um, to fit in with the system. So how to be more confident, how to pitch better, how to network better, how to um, whatever else, write business plans better, um, rather than actually questioning the system and looking at women from a kind of strength-based point of view and, and saying, okay, what, what are women actually maybe doing, which is a bit different or which is, um, maybe in some ways uh, better. So if you look at female entrepreneurs are much more likely to found social or sustainable enterprises, for example. Um, so what, rather than saying, okay, what can we learn from women? It was much more about what can we teach women? Um, and that was the kind of environment in which I founded. And um, yeah, which just after a while, it didn't feel good. And of course it also kind of grates a bit at your confidence and your kind of, um, you know, feeling of being able to build a business. Um, and um, yeah, so we just decided to, um, like I say, just kind of like switch the discourse and find women that were, that were really doing impressive things, um, but that weren't necessarily kind of ticking all the boxes that you learn in the business school. Um, and so it's a book really not for, um, just women it's, it's for everybody and what everybody can learn from these women mm. maybe i want to take you a little bit back into the um gender equality questions because what i noticed is also that to incubators the women that are coming are having way smaller ideas and kind of a scope of working whether they want to make socks or you know something that actually would fit their traditional role instead of you know guys who are coming there with these huge ideas of building factories and infrastructures and uh, there is a big difference in the kind of their 
belief in their own work and their possibility to grow? What have you noticed? I know we might be coming from different cultures, but I believe that you have some um, insights. Also, what are the differences um, between men and women in a business coming from or different social conditioning? Hmm. I mean, I don't like to generalize too much just because um, I think to a certain extent, it's right. also the the women that founding the kind of businesses that fit into stereotypes and kind of expected behavior are the ones that get funded and the ones that get maybe more publicity um, because, you know, that's also part of the system. Um, so I know that there are a lot of women engineers and, um, you know, um, people in lots of different sectors that are building things that aren't just kind of clothing companies for women, which is kind of what you get the impression of when you see um, a lot of kind of startup media and conferences that, that that's mainly what women are doing. And likewise, you know, there's loads of, there's so many men who are founding businesses and there's a full range of, the, but it's the ones that are building the massive businesses like Tesla and Google, et cetera, that get all of the attention and the ones who are building the smaller, um, more cottage industry businesses that aren't getting the, getting the attention. And so I think to a certain extent, it's our perception of those gender stereotypes, which is just being kind of reinforced through the media and um, rather than an actual reflection of reality. And it's, I think it's really important to kind of note that um, even though it feels like you know, men are these, like the successful founders, actually a tiny percentage of, of founders, you know, get to the stage of like a Tesla or a, a Google or anywhere close to that. And most of, most startups fail um, and hardly any get VC funding. And those that do, um, you know, I think about one in 20 um, manage to make, make, a, make a go of it and, you know, have a big return on profit, but most of them don't. So, um, there's that side of it, which I think we have to take into account. I do think that there is definitely an argument for saying that, you know, women are socialized to, um, you know, to ask for less. Um, and that is something that's been indicated through studies that when it comes to founding businesses, that it's not just that women get less, they also ask for less. Um, so it's really important to kind of um, put out these role models of, of women who are actually getting more. And that one of the women that we spoke to is Vivian Ming. She's a psycho, psychologist and neuroscientist. Um, and she pointed us to a study which said that, um, which showed that women who were surrounded by other women who were very kind of um, financially successful were likely to ask for more. So it's not, it's not by no means a sort of like inherent or biological um, uh, sort of quality. It's really just down to conditioning and what, what we think we can get. And if we're constantly kind of experience discrimination and being told that we won't or, or not even getting the money, um, then we tend to also not ask for it. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I told you is that reading your book makes me really happy and hopeful. And at the same time, it, it triggers me because I... I've seen these situations over and over again, not only in the business world, but in general, but um, how do you keep hope and uh, and still keep working when you know the statistics of how little female-led enterprises actually 
got uh, get in, in, in uh, investors' attention and uh, how little investors there are also as a female? It's not always easy, <laughs> to be honest. Um, it can be quite demoralizing at times. I think what really helps me is to find communities um, of people, not just women, um, that think the same. And for me, one of the women that we interviewed for the book, um, Jennifer Brandel, was super important in that respect. She's founded an organization called Zebras Unite um, in America with um, three other women. Um, which is basically a movement towards a more inclusive and sustainable economy. Um, and they're all founders and they all kind of had the same, exact same experience of, uh, as us that they just didn't quite fit into any box. They weren't, were not kind of like social enough to kind of be um, philanthropic and to get the philanthropic money or also not profit driven enough to get the VC capital. And so you kind of tend to fall in a, in a, um, in a kind of gap. And they were kind of, you know, rather than just being kind of frustrated about that or, um, or annoyed about it, were really kind of um, arguing that, you know, there needs to be a whole new ecosystem for this kind of business because these kinds of businesses are the future of business. Um, and rather than kind of trying to fit us into one of those pre-existing categories, we need to create a whole new category and they, they call it zebras. Um, and just hearing them speak and reading, reading some of the really great articles that you'll find online um, really just made me feel like suddenly really at home um, because I'd kind of always thought of, you know, our business as the one that must, there must be something wrong with our business, which is why, you know, we don't fit into the categories and why, why we struggle so much. But listening to them and like finding out there's this big movement behind them as well, and not only in the States, but in lots of other countries, um, made me realize that it's not, it's not us that's the problem, it's the system. Um, and then once you can kind of um, like connect to, to lots of other people who have the similar problems, then you can start to develop solutions and also kind of just empathize and sympathize with each other, which is really, really important. So. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of the most important things for me in this journey has been to connect with like-minded people and to just support each other to build alternative systems and not, to not necessarily wait for the systems that are already out there to, to change, because as we know, systems change takes a while. <laughs> Well, I've been also watching lately the Dragons Den and, and Shark Den, which I'm sure that you know of. And I was thinking it, it's a great actually view for, for a lot of research, also to gender and, and bias. And, and uh, well, it's still a show, but I think that you can see some patterns there. And one of the patterns that you observe is this extreme drive for profit and, and not really evaluating the social ideas behind a lot of projects and, and uh, need for speed, uh, for quick growth that you, um, that you explain also in the book. What do you think about these shows? Because I know that a lot of people are quoting them and, and you know, having it as some ideal, um, ideal resource for learning their pitches and so on. I struggle with them a lot. Um, so I think, I mean, the... the Dragon's Den from the UK, so I'm from the UK originally, that's been around for, I guess, what, like 20 years now or something. And I think maybe when it first started, it had a kind of relevance. I feel like now um, 
the business world that I, as I see it is has moved on and they've kind of st stayed in this very kind of like old school profit driven um, mentality and um, yeah so it doesn't necessarily reflect the kind of business um, or like even investor conversations that that people are having in 2021 and I think going forward um, there really isn't like space for that mentality of it just you know everything being about shareholder value um, rather than stakeholder value and you know incre increasing your size and your profits um, to the detriment of all your other um, stakeholders so yeah I wouldn't necessarily advise people to to use that as a model for um, for for their pitching um, I think there's there's lots of investors out there now that are much more progressive and much more aware of things like climate change and um, and you know what how we need to restructure the economy so that we don't just we're not just dependent on exponential growth um, and not just dependent on financial growth but also you know ecological and social development and um, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to be a contradiction to profit although I do feel like the kind of argument from a lot of impact investors that you can have the same returns on investment with the social or ecological business are wrong and um, and are kind of leading the sector in a bit of a dangerous direction um, so I still think there's some work to do there as well it's interesting because I was reading also the criticism of the shows and, and um, there is great criticism also to the ethics of the business of the of the people choosing which which um, enterprises to invest to and yeah something that I wrote you about it's interesting how we um, see people successful when they have a lot of money or at least they pretend to have or they have but they mistreat their employees as you said uber amazon and many many other big enterprises they're actually losing money but the owners are, are getting uh, paid a lot so how do you define success and what do you have seen uh, hopeful and maybe less hopeful in in the media business world um, you may have come across Ecosia, so that's a Berlin-based um, social or ecological enterprise, which is an alternative search machine, and they um, invest all of their profits in, uh, in um, planting trees, um, and they're really, really, really big now. They plant millions of trees every year, and um, as you know, in turn have millions, make millions in profit. Um, and um, the founder of, of, of Ecosia recently said that, um, you know, we need to start calling billionaires, um, not the people who have a billion dollars um, in the bank, most of them don't actually have a billion dollars in the bank, it's just all tied up in assets, um, but rather the people who are, you know, taking a billion tons of CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that's a real kind of switch in our value system as a society but that has to be that has to happen at some time because um, we all know that money doesn't you know up to a certain point it makes you happier of course because it's uh, freeing and um but uh from you know into the millions it doesn't it doesn't make you happier it doesn't make you any more kind of envious of those who have more um and it ties you it, you know it makes you less free 
um, in a way. So, yeah, that that's one thing. And um, I read a quote by Audre Lorde recently, um, one of the most um, impressive thought leaders in in uh, race and, and feminism. And she said, success is liking yourself, liking what you do and liking how you do it. And that's something that I've really taken to heart because um, for a lot of the time of building up my own business, it was, you know, sort of like going well according to sort of external validation. You know, we were getting a lot of prizes and we were in the media and it kind of felt like we should feel successful, but um, a lot of the way that we were doing things um, didn't, like I said, didn't feel right. Um, and so it didn't feel good and it didn't feel successful and it, I didn't sleep super well at night. <laughs> um, and now that we've kind of shifted a lot of things within our own company, much more in line with our own values, um, I feel, you know, in a way much more successful than I did when, um, you know, ostensibly, you know, we may have been more successful according to kind of external standards. Yeah, I guess it's appealing also to receive that external appreciation and admiration because I, I can have a, I can feel the sense, uh, the willingness also in, in myself to be, you know, having this, uh, have having this, uh, yeah, kind of external evaluation, which is very human. But I think it's a big talent also to know when it's enough, and and <laughs> it's it's always probably a play to define how much is enough, how much to work and and earn in order not to become greedy because I believe you know there's always work <laughs> to be done and there's always money to be earned so how do you balance that out um I mean it's it's not easy um this is something that I'm learning and still kind of figuring out I I think um there's always a bit of a kind of um, conflict between, you know, as a woman wanting to, you know, improve my and other women's um, standing and, you know, our access to wealth and ownership um, because, you know, women in general are still in, you know, still have a massive minority when it comes to global wealth and global ownership. Um, on the other hand, as a white person, you know, I feel like I want to be. Um, sharing my privilege as much as possible and not kind of accumulating wealth um, in the same way. Um, and I also read a book um, by Bell Hooks recently, All About Love, um, who's another really incredible um, radical feminist and anti-racist. And um, she talks about how how important it is to actually kind of focus on as little, you know, accumulating as little as possible because that gives you so much more freedom than actually more and more and more because the more you have, the more kind of commitments you have, the more ties you have, the more obligations you have, um, the more worries you have um, that come with ownership and the less flexible you are to be able to just drop everything when it doesn't feel right anymore and move on to the next thing. Whereas a lot of people, I think, tend to kind of wrap themselves up in these careers where they suddenly become really dependent on their salaries um, for mortgages and everything else that they're kind of committed to, um, their cars and their computers and their, um, you know, whatever else it is. And then when they feel like maybe their job 
doesn't fulfill them anymore, it's not kind of, doesn't feel successful, they can't necessarily get out of it. So in a way, the kind of, um, the best way to, to happiness or to a meaningful life is to kind of realize that you don't actually need that much and to kind of limit your consumption and um, your, yeah, your kind of always looking at other people to see what they've got. Um, and just kind of being satisfied with what you've got. In your book, you talk also about the slow growth, which is also a little bit different than usually investors would ask quick, quick growth, quick profit. Um, and that comes together also with ability to slowly grow and integrate different practices and people's management. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that too. Yeah, so this quick growth, um, endless growth kind of mantra is very much a stalwart of business and the economy. And everybody thinks that, you know, the GDP needs to be complete, um, constantly growing. Everybody thinks in the same way that a business's, you know, profits need to be constantly growing. Um, otherwise, there's something wrong. And um, actually, when you look at the kind of natural resources and the way in which the world works, aside from the human economic system, nothing works in that way you know nothing just keeps on growing and growing and growing and growing forever and we already obviously know that within our planetary resources if we keep on going that way then um we're gonna kill ourselves <laughs> um so um just kind of taking out that mental that that way of thinking on a kind of micro level like within your own business and asking yourself okay why why do we need to grow like, is it because that will allow us to have a bigger impact, to serve more people, to, you know, pay our employees a fair wage? Or is it just because we feel like that's what we have to do because um, that's what our shareholders are expecting from us or because that's what makes us feel good or look good? Um, and to really kind of question where that desire for growth comes from and like you said earlier like when when is it enough and when is it not productive anymore um and i think you know when you look at companies like amazon um there's no way really <laughs> that you can um justify that kind of you know size of a business especially when there's no distribution of wealth um to the people who are actually creating the value which is you know the employees um and there's obviously no way that econo economies can sustain businesses of that scale. Um, and indeed, the business of, businesses of that scale are, are positive in, in economies because they actually kind of, um, you know, s squash smaller enterprises. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really important that, that business leaders um, yeah, question this this mantra of growth for themselves and then on a bigger scale for the economy. And um, there's lots of really interesting economists now. For example, um, the per person who, Kate Rayworth, who wrote Donut, Econ uh, Econ Donut Economy, the Donut Economy, Donut Economics, I think it's called, mm -hmm. um, who's an Oxford professor and um, basically argues that, you know, we need to... Um, we need to move away from this trajectory of, you know, believing that we're constantly growing and, and come up with a more circular um, uh, structure for the economy. And she she was sort of pushed out of of academic circles and professional circles for years, and now 
you know, she's one of the most celebrated economists and is invited to speak at all the big institutions um, because there's this realization that actually she's probably right. <laughs> I'll be quoting the book all the time, but I really enjoyed the, the parts where you really expressed the vulnerability of, of explaining how sometimes you screwed up and, and, um, and still are learning. And one of the things was with, uh, with some relationships with employees, but I w it's very easy, I think, to establish your own company and, and actually run into the same patterns of doing a business because it's all around us, uh, a quick speedy work and uh, I just remember reading also some some suggestions from a startup company leaders that their employees need to be constantly reading something growing developing uh, listening to the latest podcasts being ready to change basically I felt stressed <laughs> when I was reading that because I would never want to work in such a way that I need to all the time be uh, you know, having this fear of missing out <laughs> also in a, in a working place. Uh, so maybe you could share also uh, your experience with, um, yeah, somehow learning and relearning. How, how do you um, do business and, and work with people? So um, what we talk a lot about in the book is kind of people-centric management or people-centric cultures. Um, and... That sounds sort of obvious because the people are at the center of the business, but in a lot of businesses, the people, the employees are seen as a means um, to an end. So they're just there to kind of fulfill a function, and that function is effectively to make more profits for the people who own the company. Um, and so everything that's designed around their, you know, how they, how they should work and how they do work is in order to fulfill that function and not to kind of make them... Um, better people or happier or um, more, yeah, fulfilled. Um, and so for us, it's more creating, making that the, the goal. So focusing on the employees and what employees need um, in order to feel really good at work and um, on the basis that that will also lead to a better, more sustainable um, business. Um, and... Yeah, a lot of um, a lot of what happens right now is 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 um, actually really detrimental to people's motivation and happiness. So this idea that you have to have a lot of pressure, um, you have to put a lot of pressure on people, or you need to control them, you need to kind of be constantly checking them. That doesn't actually lead to more productive work. It doesn't lead to happier employees. Um, so even if your goal is, you know, to kind of produce more things, um, then uh, bosses tend to be going the wrong way about it. Um, and really, I, I see the kind of role of, of a manager now as just creating space for employees to grow. So like you said, it's not about kind of forcing personal growth on employees, um, but helping them to identify what's important to them at work um, where they want to put their focus and then creating a space and an environment where they can really thrive um, and just getting out of their way then <laughs> as much as possible um, to the extent of actually um, getting rid of yourself as a manager. So in my organization, we now work um, in a self-organized way. So my co-founder and I are no longer, you know, the kind of official 
um, managing directors, um, but rather everybody has shared the responsibilities and the power that a managing director would normally have. And um, we don't, that doesn't mean we make decisions on a consensus basis. Everybody still has responsibility for certain areas which are in line with their strengths um, and where they want to kind of develop and um, have their focus. But um, yeah, it means that we as a team can, can grow and can actually be a lot more effective because otherwise often the bosses are kind of like the bottlenecks um, and blocking kind of uh, big changes and big decisions or taking the wrong decisions because they're not the people that ha you know, are closest to customers, for example, or closest to um, certain areas of business. And um, we're really experimenting with that because we feel like that's also the future of business, that the kind of hierarchy worked well in the kind of industrial age where you needed people to fulfill a very clear um, predefined function and role. But now um, the best businesses are the ones which are the most creative and the most innovative. And you only get that if you give your employees as much free space and free time as possible. Yet you also mentioned that it's not comfortable or available for everyone. And I was just thinking that in COVID times, actually, one of the things that may, might, <laughs> may, made pe might have made people uncomfortable is not that they had to work from home, but actually that they had to define their boundaries with work and, and time, time beyond work, which is not always easy because freedom is confusing to a lot of people. Yeah, it's not the way we've been socialized um, with school um, and, and university and work and all the kind of institutions that get us to, the, to that stage that um, people tend to unlearn, you know, defining for themselves how to, um, how to spend their time and what to, to sort of even unlearn feelings so you don't even feel anymore when something doesn't feel good. Um, you're just kind of like burying emotions as much as possible in order to function in the, in the society that we have. Um, so in a, in a way, the, the COVID has been a really good fast forward process for a lot of people and a lot of companies to actually develop those skills and talents again in terms of um, helping employees to yeah, redefine their own jobs and their own boundaries um, and take more control. And of course, it's a it's a process and there's in processes and in change processes, especially there's always a kind of forward and two steps back and two steps forward and five steps back kind of situation. But I think a lot of, or I hope that a lot of managers and employees have been shown that, you know, that, that it does work, you know, that not having somebody looking over your shoulder all the time and people being able to define um, their, their own schedules, um, for example, can be, really beneficial for everybody. Of course, there's structurally a lot of issues, like the fact that childcare wasn't considered in COVID policies at all, um, means that a lot of parents, and especially women, you know, have been put under a double burden of trying to kind of fit in their work and their childcare into the same space, which is, you know, just ridiculous. And I think that's why we need more parents and especially women in leadership positions. <laughs> so when these policies are developed, that those things are considered. Um, and it's also, a, you know, important to give people the choice, you know, again, like rather than forcing personal development on people, um, forcing remote work on people also isn't the answer. So I think 
with our team, we've, we've realized that even though we were, we were actually working remotely before the COVID crisis, so that was a conscious decision that we had taken already, um, what's really important to us is to still have space and opportunity to meet in real life and to be able to go into an office or a co-working space when you feel like you need to get out of home. So the kind of like, you know, extreme home office situation is also not the answer, but creating space where people can decide for themselves what feels right on particular days um, is the kind of dream scenario and hopefully the direction that a lot of companies will be moving mm -hmm. towards. Yeah, for me, coming from nonprofit world, I understand the change is slow, yet I want it now. <laughs> it feels, an, and I'm just wondering how, what would be your suggestions as to female wannabe entrepreneur who wants to make a difference in the world and also run a successful business, where to look for support, where to look for ethical investors and how to proceed, even if no one listens to you? <laughs> I mean, I definitely, so what I said earlier about kind of finding communities, so try to find, you know, other women um, that think in a similar way, just to have that kind of support network out there. So if you do get kind of a few no's that you don't give up immediately, but you know, okay, it's fine. It's not me. That's the problem. It's the system. Let's um, either figure out a way to hack this system or build our own systems. Um, I think um, there's now a big push towards um, female entrepreneurship. So there are a lot of investors who are specifically interested in female entrepreneurs and traditional investors are also under pressure to invest a lot more in female entrepreneurs. So to kind of take advantage of that situation as much as possible. Um, organizations like Zebras, um, Zebras Unite are really good in this, um, in this sense. They're also developing a lot of kind of alternative funding ecosystems around cooperative structures, for example, or loan-based um, financing, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think the, the most important thing is just to, um, to, to sort of do it in a sustainable way, which feels good for you and not to exploit yourself um, in the process because there are still a lot of barriers in the way. Um, so if you don't kind of have like a solid financial foundation, um, you know, to really think hard about whether this is the right path for you right now or how to navigate that just to prepare yourself for kind of um, the worst, so to speak, because, um, you know, we're trying to kind of build up the system and, and, and create new funding opportunities at the same time. but we're still kind of lacking and, and lagging behind. So just to make sure that, um, yeah, whatever you kind of embark on, that you do so in a really healthy way, um, which is really kind of loving to yourself as well. One thing that you also mentioned and is a col collaboration and, and the need to collaborate. And, and I don't know if you mentioned of... of kind of distributing tasks and not not going alone and not not doing it all alone but what i noticed is a lot of uh, or a tendency to do a business alone which is you know uh, way more difficult in one way but then when i speak with somebody who have started 
uh, a company with a group of friends and they say, oh, I would do it again. If I would do it again, I would go alone, <laughs> you know, because they have had these negative experiences with the conflicts and, and you know, disagreements with, with the finances and so on. Uh, what's your take on, because I know that you're also not discouraging working with friends and, and establishing friendly relations with with the team. So what what's your opinion? Um, so my opinion is that it can definitely work and it can be really something really beautiful um, to work with friends. Um, but you need to be very aware of the potential pitfalls and um, to just f above all focus on communication and communicate much more than you would um, think would be necessary and definitely engage the help of coaches. So having a coach for yourself and for your team um, is one of the most important things, I would say, um, most important pieces of advice for people starting up and not to wait, but just to kind of have, not to wait until there's a problem, but to kind of have somebody um, to guide you through those processes and those kind of big decisions. Um, because there's a lot of things that you learn very quickly about yourself and about other people. You change um, very quickly and in order not to be kind of pulled into these kind of um, cliches or ideas of how to do business, which maybe then don't feel so good for you, you need to be very clear about who you are and what you want and to also be able to communicate that to other people, including your co-founders and team and of course investors and other stakeholders. So um, having a coach to kind of guide you through that process is really, really important. And even if um, it seems like, you know, you can't afford a professional coach, then to kind of at least have other founders that you can kind of spar with um, who will give you really honest feedback and who will share their experiences with you so that you, yeah, don't necessarily make the same mistakes that a lot of um, first-time founders do make although of course everybody makes mistakes and that's part of the journey but um yeah and we tend to also kind of uh go to the people which are like-minded and similar to us and i guess it's a bit of struggle to embrace practically diversity although we know that we need to have a diverse team and it's it's wonderful on the paper but then then in the practice a lot of frustrations come out just because there are different rhythms and, and ways of seeing and working how have you dealt with that um so to start off we were super undiverse um and realized that that's also not a good um combination neither for us nor for our business nor for kind of society um i think what's important is to kind of differentiate between diversity of values and diversity of you know strengths and background um and for me it's really important to have unity of values especially like some really core values um but diversity of of backgrounds and and experience and and strengths and um so even though it might feel easier and definitely feels more natural to just kind of pick other people that are very similar to you, um, the, the best kind of founding teams are very diverse ones. Um, so the more that you can kind of, yeah, branch out from your own bubble and also with your first employees, you know, where our first employees looked and sounded very much like us. Um, and we know that from the kind of traditional corporate sector that you know the 
male leaders tend to support and mentor and and promote other younger male males that, that look and sound a lot like they they did when they were younger um, and we had the exact same situation it was no different it was that kind of implicit bias that makes you think that people that are like you are better mm. <laughs> um, so yeah just to kind of try and make those implicit biases as explicit as possible and to try and kind of work actively against them um, helps to build definitely a better a better team the last question I have is actually connected more to the uh, age, not the gender, because I was recently reading a book also um, with an author. I don't remember at the moment, but he was saying that the startup world and all this quick business world is actually big on, on ageism. And, you know, if you're over 40, it's over. <laughs> what has been your experience with with age and the business and opportunities or stereotypes? Yeah, I mean, I do think that's definitely a an issue. Even in the, the big startups, um, you've still got a very, very young workforce, um, which is quite interesting. It doesn't seem to change, you know, as startups get bigger, it seems to kind of be reinforced. Um, I think it has a little bit to do with values because there is obviously a slight kind of like va um, value shift across generations. So what we see a lot is in the millennial target group, um, Millennials want different things out of work than, um, you know, than older people perhaps um, did. On the other hand, I think that's also a bit of a, um, a misnomer because I think a lot of older people actually also want a lot of freedom and autonomy. <laughs> um, it's just that there wasn't really space to demand that when they were kind of starting out. But um, I think uh, now our values are a lot more aligned than maybe people realize. Um, but yeah, I think in the same way, the more diverse a team can be age-wise, the better. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's, it's definitely something to be encouraged. Yeah, I remember him also mentioning that, that uh, men in Silicon Valley are really into coloring the hair not to look <laughs> that old, not to be employed, which is also a kind of a sign of you know, the culture up there, which is uh, throwing older people or sometimes more experienced people out of the door. And maybe it's not much connected with with uh, mentality, but also of fear, because I guess the older you get, the more critical you can be to the workspace. Yeah, that's true. I think um, one thing that we've spoken a lot about is um, like this idea of kind of alpha male um, or alpha behavior, which isn't necessarily specific to males, um, but um, a lot of the kind of leaders that we see in the traditional tech world and also um, other business areas tend to be kind of quite alpha, um, so quite dominant and loud and extroverted and um, in, a way, in a way sort of demonstrating a kind of toxic masculinity, um, which is, you know, a kind of patriarchy, which is damaging to not only women but also men because it very much reduces the idea of what a man has to be and look like and sound like in order to be mm -hmm. successful and have a certain status and age doesn't fit in with that you know so um i also heard a really interesting podcast um episode prentice hemp hill um that i can really recommend 
I mean, all of her air podcasts, and one of them um, was talking about the the suicide um, trend of older males, older white males in particular, who um, are much, much, much more likely to commit suicide um, after the age of 60, I think, um, or even younger. Um, than younger and than females. And that has a lot to do with this idea that, you know, once you are not young anymore, you've kind of lost your status in society. And a lot of men then really struggle um, to find a new identity or to accept that identity. And that leads to suicide. And so, you know, when we're talking about feminism and and kind of um, ending the patriarchy, it's not about... um, you know, creating a system where women are, you know, leading everything and taking the same role as a lot of men are now, but rather kind of completely restructuring our ideas about what, um, you know, working life can be like and what what's good and what's bad and what's powerful and what's not powerful and what's what has a high status and what doesn't have a high status, like getting, almost getting rid of those concepts altogether and finding a new way of um, of defining ourselves as human beings which would be much, much better for both women and men and everybody. So that's the big picture. (laughs) Thank you, Naomi, so much for this conversation and for writing a book, co-writing a book, which uh, really inspired and I'm really thankful for our friend Julia that that, uh, gave me this book by accident (laughs) on my visit to Berlin. But it has really given me hope uh, because at that moment I was just thinking how repelled I am um, against all this... uh, way of working and I'm not fitting and instead of uh, questioning myself I started to question a system so thank you uh, from my side to you I'm happy that that it had that effect for you so thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you Naomi we'll be putting uh, all the links also to to, uh, your company and uh, your book uh, with with the conversation out so thank you (laughs) see you around take care Hope you have enjoyed today's episode. You can follow us on the Alliance of Social Entrepreneurship Facebook page and find our episodes on all major podcast platforms. Alliance for Social Entrepreneurship is supported by EU program Erasmus+, which aims to support education, training, youth and sport in Europe.